My aha was when, when I was talking to a guy who was a, a real estate investor, he had a big firm in Austin, um, about half, half a billion in, in assets under management. And, uh, he, he wanted to create a finance company. That was his next move to take the company to the next level. And I was just, you know, I was an investor in his, fir- in his fund for a while and, um, kind of followed, you know, he was a friend of mine. So I'd go out to lunch and, and just talk to him and follow what he was doing. And, uh, he started telling me that he was going to be leveraging his life insurance policies as the finance company. He was creating a finance company using life insurance products. And I looked at him like he had three heads and he was going crazy. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he showed me, he just laid it out. He said, look, we love real estate because it's an asset that stores value that, um, you know, I don't, he, his phrase was always, I don't care if you're using Bitcoin, dollars, Deutschmarks, or yen, you got to pay me something for the real estate. That it's an, an asset that can be sold, you know, in any currency or whatever's going on in the world. This is the Better Wealth Podcast with Caleb Williams. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Better Wolf Podcast. Today, we sit down with Sean Briscoe, and you guys are in for a treat because this guy has is a wealth of knowledge, number one, has an amazing story, and also has used life insurance in some really unique ways and helped other people use it in some really unique ways. And I know at the end, you're just going to have a just a more a bigger understanding of what's possible but i got introduced to sean through a person that's helping me set up my foundation and we got introduced and i within five ten minutes of meeting this guy i'm like we're going to be best friends Uh, he has an amazing family he has a foundation that i'm really excited to learn more about and, and the work that they're doing he's had multiple ups and downs in the entre- as an entrepreneur. Uh, we also have a lot of the same friends in this business and have learned from some of the same people, uh, but he's also extremely passionate about sharing how, um, how people can be more in control of their money. And he's also a huge fan of life insurance, uh, which was a really amazing thing. And one of the one of the things that just kind of uncovered in our, our friendship is he said, Caleb, I love what you're doing so much that I want to really align and be an ambas- ambassador for helping you share the and asset and why someone doesn't have to choose. And he loves the book. So what's actually going to happen is uh, in, starting in 2020, he's really going to be uh, helping us market and aligning his business, his message with what we're doing. And we are so thrilled to have someone as as high quality as Sean, not only endorsing us, but being, being in the trenches with us, helping share the message. So without further ado, here's Sean. Hey man, welcome to the show. Thanks, thanks for having me. So we have another live interview in Denver, Colorado. It's good to have you here. Uh, it's a little bit different than Austin, right. uh, Texas, but it's a little colder. I'm excited to have you on the show, man, because of a couple of reasons. Number one, you've been in this business almost longer than I've been alive. <laughs> <laughs> almost twenty years. Okay. Uh, number two is you've been in, you've been working with some of the top people in this space as it relates to infinite banking, internet marketing, helping people and entrepreneurs take control over their money. And so I want to dive into your background there. You also are really passionate about foundation 
and foundation work and what you're doing. And because of meeting you and some other people, I've started my first foundation and I'm really excited about the impact that we're going to do through that. I am too. I'm excited to see what you, what you but do then with that. Another big thing, man, this truly like from the heart means the world. You are so impressed with what we're doing that you're going to join forces and help us share the message in the and asset and help us get out the word and to have someone like you on board means the world. So we have a lot we have a lot to jump in. Why don't you share your origin story? And what, remember when we first talked I'm like okay, who who Sean like and I remember like within 5 minutes I'm like this guy is like the coolest person. Like I can't believe I'm talking to someone like you. <laughs> Cuz I get hit up a lot, right? But like I'm like wow, this is this guy has been around the block and knows a thing or two and it's a pleasure talking with you. So um why don't you share your quick story uh, and really and that really paint the picture of why life insurance number one is um, why you've dedicated your life into helping people take back control using that as sure well. yeah I um I've got a weird kind of uh, background and weird story um, I was a diver and I trained for the Olympic team I spent my whole life from the time I was eight years old on and up training for the you know the Olympics and the the image of winning a medal, being on the Wheaties box, and then hopefully eventually, you know, coaching kids or, you know, speaking to kids and teaching them how to set goals, how to work hard, all of that stuff. And that was the image. That was, that was the dream. Right. And so when I was, when I was 14 years old, I I moved away from home and I, I went down to Mission Viejo, California, Southern California, where the Olympic team was training, where Greg Luganis and the whole Olympic team was, was, uh, competing and training. And, and I started training with them 14 years old at the time. I was the youngest member of the team. Had an amazing career. We we ended up moving to Florida, to Boca Raton, Florida for a while. Um, competed nationally and internationally for a long time. Represented the U.S. on the national team for a long, long time. Got to see China and Russia and you know, every basically every country that you can you can imagine on the planet through diving, through sports. Um, which was interesting because when I was growing up, I was in uh, growing up in a very middle class home. You know, my mom was a medical technologist and my dad was a, an electrical engineer. Um, they both worked at Stanford University, which was a great cushy nine to five job. Great benefits, awesome location, really really cool uh, environment to be working in, and it was it was almost like that was their dream. Their dream was to work for a good institution or a good company or a good group where they would be nine to fivers, W-2, you know, take home a paycheck and have really, really good benefits where they had a 401k and they could save for retirement. And, and so that was the, their entire generation was set up for that. While I was diving and traveling, I was meeting entrepreneurs. I was meeting business owners. Uh, there was a point in my career where, you know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up or, or the mentality was, the mindset was we didn't have a lot growing up. Now, looking back, we were, we never went without. And to this day, you know, my, my dad has done an incredible job saving for his retirement, has a wonderful nest egg for retirement, um, was one of the lucky ones. But in reality, that's less than 2% of Americans, you know? It actually had had those plans work out for them, um, but we grew up believing in in things like money doesn't grow on trees. That was the big saying in our home. In fact, there's a, a funny story. Uh, when I was young, 
you know, Northern California would get cold in the wintertime. And oh, we I had imagine, a, yeah. No, well, how cold would it get? No. Well, yeah, not not like here. It didn't snow, but it was, you know, it was chilly. It was cold. It was, um, you, you know, know, I'm from Wisconsin, so know, that doesn't fly. But okay, <laughs> you do we'll ice continue. fishing. And, You've lost your all PJs. credibility in my books, but not continue. <laughs> well, we had this, you know, we had this big wood burning stove in the, the family room and it just radiated heat and it was really, really comfy. Um, the wood pile was in the backyard and one day I was out, you know, getting wood and I, I was bringing it into the house. I would put it by the, the wood burning stove and I would shove it all in the wood burning stove and it was full. I mean, it was way, way too much wood for the, for what we needed for the night. <laughs> my mom came running in the, the room and, and my dad and my brother and my sister were there and she goes, blurts out of her mouth. She says, Sean, what are you doing? That's too much wood. You know, wood doesn't grow on trees. And we all looked at each other and we were just started laughing because that, that was the mindset of our family. Nothing grew on trees. It was that bad. And so yet I had this, this juxtaposition when, when I would travel and compete for the U.S. national team, I was meeting, you know, billionaires who, who were uh, captains of industry, who had created companies that had, that had just uh, forged paths that were just amazing. They were entrepreneurs um, creating big things. And so I knew there was a better way. There was a different way. My parents would tell us, just drill it into us that we had to work hard. We had to study hard, study hard so that you could get a degree, so that you could be employable by a company, get a good 401k and retire with a gold watch and a pension, essentially, you know, and I knew that that just wasn't my path. I knew that it, it was probably the path of a lot of people. In, in my parents' generation, but I, I knew that there was another another path for me, and I wanted more. And so I started studying. And I started learning from these these wealthy families that I was that I was uh, competing and training with their kids. Um, you know, we would go over to their house, and they would have you know sleepovers and stuff like that. And and I was going to Menlo Park in in Stanford University in Palo Alto, where Silicon that's the heart of Silicon Valley. And it's some of the wealthiest families in the world live there. You know, I'd ask them questions. You know, what do you do? How did you start that business? How did you, how did you hire all those employees? You have 150 employees. How is that possible? How do you manage all of them? How does, how does, um, how do you deal with your money? Like what, you know, all of those questions. And so I learned a lot growing up, you know, fast forward to the end of my diving career. You know, I ended up being an alternate on the team. I didn't compete in the Olympics, but uh, when I was finished, I, I went full force into uh, work and started making money. I went to go work for Dell Computer. I was a sales manager. I managed a team, and I made a bunch of money through their Dell stock options program. You know, we were they were throwing options at us at at the time. Their stock was splitting and doubling every year, and so a lot of wealth was created through their stock. And that was the game at the time. We would make as much income as we could, put it all into their employee stock purchase program, our 401k, or just plain out, you know, plain buy stock on the on the stock exchange, Dell stock. Um, and and it created a lot of millionaires. So in uh, when I was 29 years old, I ended up retiring, and I quit Dell. I retired. I I sold everything I had. Um, I sold all my stock options. I sold my the stock that I had purchased. 
I even sold my 401k. <laughs> I cashed out of it. And did you get hammered with taxes? Yes. Okay. Yes. But you just, why, why did you, why did you sell everything? Because I, I didn't know what to do. I had no guidance, no direction. Nobody, nobody with money was showing me what to do with it. See it all the time. What it, so you're 29 years old. How much, how much money did you have at the time? I had over a million dollars. Wow. So I'm sitting there, I'm 29 years old. I had a million bucks and I'm, I'm sitting there and, uh, water skiing every day, having fun in Austin, Texas, and, you know, just enjoying the, the scene and, and enjoying myself for the whole summer. At the end of the summer, a friend of mine, um, I ran into a, an old friend of mine from Dell who had, had quit the same time I did, and he was starting an internet company. And this is back when the dot-com boom was exploding and everybody was starting their own internet company. And Austin was kind of the hub for those startups. We had Dr. Coop, we had you know, a, a bunch of different startup dot-com companies in Austin at the time. So we, we decided to start a company and we called it mall.com. This kid had, um, he had purchased a bunch of domain names and he had flipped them for a profit. He would, he would buy domain names like, um, you know, dellsales.com and he sold it to Dell. There were a bunch of domain names that he sold to Dell. Uh, he, and that's how he was making money. But he told me, he said, I want to keep a, f- a few of them. And I said, what are you going to do with them? And he said, let's start a company. So he kept mall.com and shops.com. And we decided to start the very first shops as in, shops as in online shopping. Well, that's a good domain. Yeah. And it was the very first online shopping mall of its kind. You know, this is back when Amazon was just starting up, but they were only selling books. Uh, Priceline.com was out there, but they were only in the travel space. And they, there were all these these vertical marketplaces, you know, that were kind of siloed off. And we had this great idea. Why not tie them all together in, in one platform? So we created mall.com and it was a really unique model at the time because um, it was just a portal. Everybody was starting to put up their, their web pages to sell things. And we were acting as just the pass-through. So people would go to mall.com, they would see the mall directory, they would go to Macy's or JCPenney or J. Crew. Um, they would go shopping and they would put it in our universal shopping cart, which was our technology. Very first universal shopping cart of his kind. We would escrow the money and then we would pay the anchor stores 30 days later. Oh, so you got to float the money for 30 days? Yes. We didn't know what we were doing at the time. It was literally a logistics issue. It would take us 30 days to pay you your cut from the sale. And when that was just written into our contract. We had no idea about the flow. They would drop ship. They would ship it directly to the customer. Correct. Wow. Correct. They, you were literally buying from Dillard's. You weren't buying from us. You were buying from Dillard's, but you were going through our shopping cart. Well, that caught the attention. We, we were able to float that money for 30 days and it, it started to really compound. <laughs> right. I can imagine. How did people hear about you? We were spending a lot of money on marketing at the time. I remember, I remember co-signing on a check, a company check for $4 million one day to be the lead sponsor, the title sponsor for the mall.com 500, which was a race up in Dallas where we had a car. Um, we, we had a booth, we had, you know, a box and we brought all of our, our, um, you know, investors and all of our, you know, high net worth uh, friends that, that we wanted to woo. And we, we brought them to this uh, this race. It rained the entire time. Our car crashed on the second lap and they called the, the event on, on like lap 10. And yeah, $4 million up in flames. We got zero engagement from it. Not one customer. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that makes me sick. Yeah. yeah. But here was the, the name of the game back then was totally different. It was how can we raise venture capital and create this machine where it will appear like we're growing and in, in earning revenue and making money. And most of the dot-coms of the day were losing money like crazy. And so it, the the revenue for the company was new investment capital. It was ridiculous. So how much of your money did you have in malls, malls.com? My own personal capital. I, I would just reinvest anything that I was making. So I, I bought my own stock. I, I had... What, what ended up happening was we ended up selling the company to a venture capital group in Austin. Um, and, and it was a big pile of cash. And there were five founders, five guys that founded the company. So we're sitting around a table one day and we're all instantly, you know, we we just made about five million each. It was, you know, slightly different for each of us. But um, oh, wow. we're sitting there with all this money and, and like, you know, anybody that's wise to finances and money and, and wealth, we decided to not take any of the chips off the table and protect that we decided to go all in and double down on the next venture so that we could quote unquote 10 X our return. Right. That was, that was the name of the game back then. And of course that was right when the dot-com bubble burst, the rug got yanked out from under us. We lost everything, had to shut our doors, had to let go of 150 employees and literally had to hit the reboot button and start all over again. And so I got really curious about what my friends who didn't lose any money in the dot-com bust, what they were doing. And so I, I started meeting with them, taking them to lunch and dinner and just asking them questions about how they handled it, you know, what they did, what moves they were making, how they, how they saw the crash coming. Because a lot of them, you know, got out of the market before the dot-com bubble burst and they put their money in safe assets. You know, uh, I also was was noticing that they were going from stocks and risky dot com stocks into the next undervalued asset, which was real estate at the time. And so I just kind of followed along with them, and I started investing in real estate. And I set up a, a company where we did real estate lending and investing. And I had read a book from a guy named Doug Andrew, who you know misfortune. And it was all about how you could harvest equity from real estate and put it into life insurance and protect it. So I started, I, I went, flew to Utah, met with him, interviewed him, got really involved in his, his um, training and, and how he would position this, this asset, life insurance, as a benefit to people. And I started showing it to my, our clients that were investing in real estate and, and who we were doing mortgages for. And um, it literally started shifting my thinking about what was possible, you know, because I had always assumed that if you, um, you know, if you have money in the bank, you have a choice. You either can save that money and keep it liquid or you can invest it's, it's that. It's hilarious, man, because I had that same dilemma and that's what caused me to write the end asset. Yeah. We're, we're given this false choice of you have to do something with your money. Either do something for the future, keep it liquid, but there's that cost of lost opportunity, which you have if you keep it in the bank. And every time you use a dollar, you don't just lose that dollar, you lose it. That dollar could have earned you the rest of your life. Forever, into perpetuity. So you had this, you met with Doug Andrews, and and I mean, obviously, if you don't know anything about life insurance, it's, you're like, why in the world would you do this? Right. <laughs> did, did you, were you seeking out a better way, or did you... 
were you accepting and did you listen to everything that they said? Does that make sense? Yeah, I I challenged a lot of it just because of the the notion of life insurance, right? I mean, life isn't life insurance isn't something that you buy; it's sold to you. That was that was the adage, right? And you know, I was talking to all of my wealthy friends at the time who had knocked the ball out of the park. I had a couple of friends that started hedge funds and just. When, when the real estate market tanked, their hedge funds just exploded. And now they're considered one of you know, the brightest financial minds of our time. And you know, I'm talking to them on a, on a regular basis about what they're doing with their money and, and how they're making moves. And at that time, I was just curious. I was like, what the heck are they doing? Every single one of them had cash value life insurance. Mm. Every single one of them. It wasn't like it was a, an anomaly where a few of them, Every single one of them. Same with my journey. I'm starting to look at people that actually had the money and what they were doing, and they were writing big checks to fund life insurance. And it was it was until I realized that that wasn't the end goal. Mm-hmm. It was just store, a store place to put capital. That's when the aha moment was for me. Was that the same? When did you have that aha moment? My aha was when, when I was talking to a guy who was a, a real estate investor. He had a big firm in Austin. Um about half half a billion in, in assets under management, and uh, he he wanted to create a finance company. That was his next move to take the company to the next level. And I was just you know I was an investor in his fir- in his fund for a while and um, kind of followed you know he was a friend of mine, so I'd go out to lunch and, and just talk to him and follow what he was doing. And uh, he started telling me that he was going to be leveraging his life insurance policies as the finance company. He was creating a finance company using life insurance products. And I looked at him like he had three heads and he was going crazy. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he showed me, he just laid it out. He said, look, we love real estate because it's an asset that stores value that, um, you know, I don't, he, his phrase was always, I don't care if you're using Bitcoin, dollars, Deutschmarks, or yen, you got to pay me something for the real estate that it's an, an asset that can be sold, you know, in any currency or whatever's going on in the world. But <laughs> the dollar was the strongest currency at the time and real estate values were starting to go down. You know, there was that, that weird, um, there's that weird situation where everybody in America had believed that real estate always appreciates by 6% every year. Right, it always does, and it always will, and it, it there's never been a case where it hasn't. Right, in the last thirty years, and this was the first time where some of my friends were seeing that you know real estate values were increasing, but everybody's jobs and incomes were flattening out. This was in two thousand and six. Okay, so you're oh boy, you're getting into the real estate in two thousand six. And are you using life insurance as well to help finance that? Now, I wasn't using it to finance it. What I was using it for was a store of cash when I would exit the real estate deal. Okay. Okay. So when it was deployed in the real estate, it was in the real estate. And when it was out of the real estate, it was back in the, the insurance contract. Um, anyway, so, you know, talking to some friends of mine, they were telling me what they were doing with getting out of real estate. And I was like, Oh no, man, it's going to go on forever. You know, grows at 6%. It always does. Always will. And then 2008 hit and the same exact thing happened. The bubble burst, the rug was yanked out from under us. We had to shut our doors. We had to lay off employees. 
I lost properties. I lost cash. And it really forced my hand at the time because I was, I was leading and guiding other people in doing what I was doing, which was investing, real estate lending and investing in life insurance, right? Um, and so it was really difficult to, to take that on the chin. You know, it's always difficult when, and I think most entrepreneurs are this way, when we cycle, when you go and you build something big and then it comes crashing down, we, we tend to beat ourselves up a lot. And that happened for me. I kind of pulled back, I licked my wounds and I was like, okay, I've got to figure out a better way to do this for myself. You know, my, my wife and I, we got married right around that time and uh, ba- because of my, my background in diving, I was always coaching kids when I was growing up. I was, I'm a really good diving coach and I've got a really good eye for it. And, and I've, I've always like at UT at university of Texas, the college coach there, uh, when he goes out of town, he'll give me a call to see if I can step in and, and coach the kids. And so, you know, I coached, I've coached Olympic medalists. I've coached beginning kids just starting out and everybody in between. I just love it. I love coaching and helping people to, achieve what they want to achieve. Um, and I, I always wanted to be a dad because I always thought I'd be a great dad because of the coaching ability. My wife and I got pregnant right away. And um, unfortunately, we ended up losing our first child. Um, and it sent us both into a tailspin emotionally. We, we um, were disconnected, felt very alone, isolated, like I, would, I had failed not only as a businessman, but also as a father, you know, um, was angry at God, <laughs> you know, just frustrated and mad and in that pit, in that dark place. Um, out of that, we, we ended up meeting some friends through our church who, who had gotten involved in foster care and they had gotten licensed to take on some kids in foster care. They had some kids of their own family of their own, but they just wanted to help these kids. And, uh, they, they kind of told us, they said, you know, why don't you give it a shot? You'll, you'll never know. Maybe that's God's plan for you to grow your family. And so my wife and I reluctantly got into foster care and adoption, and we got licensed. It, it normally takes people about 30 days to go through the process of licensing. It took us about eight months because we were so resistant. We just were, were hesitant. We were scared. We didn't know what we were getting into. Um, and of course, we always thought that we were going to have our own kids. So there was that dynamic as well. And ended up getting licensed. And uh, immediately the next day, we got these two little girls, Chiquita and Sarah, who were two years old and four years old. They were they were um, part of a sibling group of six kids. Uh, parents were, were cooking meth in a one-bedroom apartment where the whole family was living in a one-bedroom apartment. And uh, when the cops came and, and CPS was called, they took the kids away put them in a group home and there were not enough beds in the group home for the two youngest ones. So we got the phone call. That was our first experience. And we immediately knew that's what we were meant to do. And so I, I kicked it into high gear. I'm, I'm a super competitive guy. And immediately I had a mission, you know, figure out how we can create some kind of 501c3 charity to help these kids and in the meantime, how do I grow this business and make a bunch of money so we can actually fund that? And uh, that's when I got really, really serious about the and asset, the, the insurance strategy, because I, I revisited all of those friends of mine who had done really well, and they showed me their accounts. And just, <laughs> it was unbelievable. 
And when I asked them, I'm like, how the heck did it grow so fast, so, so high, so fast? It wasn't that the, it was the internal returns that, that were the thing. It was the, the process that they were following. It was the way that they were creating efficiencies with their money. They were not losing money. They were not leaking money through taxes or inflation or interest expense or even just paying cash for stuff. They were keeping every dime they could. So they could save a lot more money. Yes. And you could see that efficiency of saving a lot more. When they showed me the power of just the volume of those dollars compounding. Yep. I love that. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. You know, and and when they told me that, yeah, not only do you get to add as much cash to the account as you can up to up to the maximum amount, but you get dividends on top of that, and those dividends are outpacing inflation and are outpacing your interest expense because interest rates were low, so your returns were greater than the interest rate you know that you were paying. It was unbelievable. So it shifted everything. And I really, that's when I jumped all, I was all in and I said, okay, I'm going to really do something with this. And I made that the core focus of, of what I was, you know, all about that and also our foundation. And that was an experience as well. Just discovering, trying to find and discover how do you start a foundation? You know, a lot of us, we, we build businesses and we we're trying to make money. We're trying to create wealth so that we can give back more, so that we can do something meaningful, you know, make a bigger impact on the world. And it, it almost feels like it's a losing battle to most people because they, they end up working twice as hard and, and their take-home pay becomes less and less and less because of those outside forces that are eroding and eating away at their money. You know, the interest expense, the inflation, taxes, all of that stuff. And, and that's when I got serious about really just figuring out how do, I, how do I lock down my income and really take advantage of collapsing time and compounding that money as quickly as I possibly could so that we could go out and fund a nonprofit and help these kids. Which is so, so incredible, man, because that's, that's my mission as well. Yeah. Like I want to be a very profitable, very successful in business so that we can fund and help people and share the gospel like that that's stuff that I'm really really passionate about one thing that I I know that we're not going to go into in this interview but we we will have you on the show again where you, we actually break down the tax benefits of having a foundation sure. because I'll say this I'll just get you guys thinking we are all about helping people take back control and I'm telling you if you want to already be generous with someone if you know the rules to the game you know how to combine the and asset and a private foundation. You can be more charitable. You can save more money on taxes and be in control the whole time. Yeah. I mean, the rules of the game are set up for you to do that. Powerful. And yet we don't, you know, 95% of the Americans don't even know about this. Another stuff. thing that, so. and we're not going to name any names on this podcast, but you, you are, you've know, we know a lot of the same people, a lot of the same mentors. When I, when I heard, when I heard your story, I was really blown away by you were, you were, I mean, you made a lot of money teaching this and you worked with a lot of people. And why don't you share your experience? Because one of the things that is such an honor is you could work with anyone. You could do your own thing. And I'm just, I'm really grateful that we have people like you that buy into the vision of a million by 2025. Yeah. I'm, I'm so excited to be here and working with your team. It's just, the, the vision is incredible and it just, um, it, it gives you that sense of mission and purpose you know, which is so lacking in our world today. 
we just tend to go through the motions. But yeah, so I was fortunate to connect with a couple of internet entrepreneurs at you know, almost 10 years ago. It's crazy. <laughs> it seems, seems like just yesterday. I was uh, just starting high school, <laughs> but we won't mention that. Exactly, exactly. So partner with these these internet marketers who, who were teaching entrepreneurs and business owners and investors how to navigate through the new economy because everything had changed after the real estate crash. And it was almost like there was this black box. There was this secret, um, this, this secret black box that the wealthy knew about that nobody else knew about. And so the, these internet marketers were, were great at delivering that message that there is a better way of doing things. And if we just learn from the people who are doing it the right way and implement, you know, it's, it's a, almost a two-prong approach. You got to first educate yourself and then you got to actually implement what you're learning. Without the implementation piece, nothing changes. And we've seen a lot of people go astray. Like a lot of people know, uh, quote unquote, I'm using quotation marks. A lot of people know the right thing to do. And then you look at what they're actually doing and you're like, you just put your face, your hands on your face. Yep. You're like, oh my goodness. What knowing what to do and doing it are two totally different things. Right. Because most of us, especially entrepreneurs and business owners, we get so locked up in how do I grow my business and, you know, just the immediate putting out the fires today that we can't even take the time to step back and strategically think about, okay, how can I lay out a journey or a strategy or a process to implement this stuff? Let's talk about a quick win that you give. Cause you, I mean, you worked with, you work with hundreds of entrepreneurs around the country. What's a common quick win that you can give someone by sure. for them? Working? Sure. Yeah. Um, real estate investors who want to flip properties. Okay. You know, that is a, that's a great niche. It's a great group of people because when you introduce them to this concept of the and asset where you've, they've got a storehouse for the cash ready to deploy into the next deal when they find it, but at the same time, they're not losing anything because it's growing. It's earning dividends. You know, they may not find a good deal. And especially now we're talking, you know, we're about to see another correction, I don't know if you want to call it a correction or a crash, in real estate. It's inevitable. You know, the and the problem isn't necessarily that the values are going too high. It's really the debt load. You know, we we've taken the problem of two thousand and eight and we've blown it up and now it's ten times what it what it was back then. Just just like your four hundred one K by the way. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that's what a government is doing this too. They're referring the problem. They don't want to they won't kicking they the can down the road. Kicking the can down the road. So the question then is can you tell me one problem that you've ever solved by kicking the can down the road? Ooh, ooh, my friend, that, that's that's a good question. Nobody has ever solved the problem by kicking the can down the road. So unless you address the needs today, your results will never come. You will never get where you want to go if you don't make the decision to commit to doing something different today. Hmm. And that's the key for me. Yeah. What's the biggest mistake you're seeing entrepreneurs make with their money, with their business, with their time, their life? I know that's a loaded um, question. Yeah, I think it's the herd mentality, which is no different than it was in 08. Okay. We, we as, a, as human beings, are programmed to uh, travel in herds. We feel like we're safer in a herd. And unfortunately, that groupthink mentality is the most dangerous thing we can ever, we can ever have. It's the, it's the part of the human condition, but it is the most dangerous thing in, in the world. I mean, when you think about uh, just kids in high school um, jumping into fights and then the mob mentality, everybody going after somebody, 
You know, that is the biggest, the biggest problem that we have in our society today. And it trickles down through everything. It's not just in, you know, fighting in, in high school. It's with our money. We follow the herd. We do exactly what the talking heads tell us to do on Wall Street. And we just follow lockstep with everybody else going straight off the cliff. And if you notice, if you take a step back and you pause and you just look around and start asking good questions, what you'll notice is that the ones who win the game don't do what everybody else is doing. In fact, the wealthiest families out there specifically do things different than the crowd, than the masses, intentionally. Because they know that if they jump in with the herd, they're going to get exactly what the herd's going to get. It's funny, man, because some people look at what we do, especially in the and asset, and go, you know, I haven't heard of this strategy a lot. Mm-hmm. And this isn't an average, like, this isn't this isn't what average people do. I've actually yeah. gotten that response. And I don't, I don't, because I'm too nice, I think, but I, I go, isn't that a good thing? Like, don't you, do you want to be average? Like, have you, have you looked at what's going on right now with the average person in America? Like, so wait, let me write your goal down. Okay. Wants to be average. I mean, sometime, you know what I'm going to do on this podcast? I am just going to spend eight minutes reading statistics on how messed up we are when it comes to our money in America. It's bad. It's really bad. And it's the way it comes down to one thing. The way that we I mean, we got a trillion dollars in student loan debt. You know, that is not going to be repaid ever. Never. You know, it's we've got more consumer debt and household debt than even before 08. And we're just like, you know, so? Yeah. <laughs> just deferring the problem, kicking the can down the road. Uh, what's, what's the coolest? I know you have a ton of stories. Um, what's the coolest story that you have as far as someone working with you using the and asset. I want to get, I want people listening to this podcast, not just to get good stories and feedback, but I also want them to get some ideas on how they can use the and asset in their own life and their own dream. Sure. So I've, I've got thousands of clients now um, over the last, you know, 20 some years doing this, almost 20 years. Um, but my, one of my favorite clients is a pilot for Delta and very, very charitable guy. He's, he's single. He doesn't have a family, travels the world. So he's making really, really good money. Um, but he's W2, right? And he, he wanted to start his own foundation because he wants to help kids uh, through education. He wants to set up schools in India. That's his big deal, um, his, his mission and purpose. So uh, he set up the foundation, but he's using, he's got a, a few different policies. He's using his policies to fund the charitable giving. So he's actually keeping all of his money and growing all of his money and he's still being charitable. He's still contributing. It's powerful. Yes. That's, uh, that's, yes. That is one of the reasons, by the way, I'm getting into this strategy because when you understand that you can have both, it's it just compounds. And this, this is why we want to have a strong foundation, but it's just powerful to see the possibilities of someone being able to have a bigger impact, but also have more money. Yeah. So I'll, I'll let me finish that case study for you. So last year, he uh, he called the tax team that he's working with, and he said, "How much do I need to to donate to my foundation to maximize my deduction?" Right. They did a real quick calculation. Now he's W two, which means government's taking his taxes out every single paycheck. They get paid first, so they've they've got a bunch of his money. 
he he wrote a check out of his and asset out of his insurance contract for $68,000. Donated that to his foundation and it created just enough of a tax deduction that he got a $22,000 refund from the IRS. That's a $90,000 swing. The $68,000 deduction plus the refund that he gets to keep that money. And that's just this year. I can't imagine what it's going to look like next year or the year after that or the year after that into perpetuity while he repeats the process of keeping the money, growing the money, and giving the money. It's extremely powerful. And, And I know that there's so much more. And what I'm excited about is to... In, just includes a lot of your education to our and asset university because so many people learn different ways some people like the way that i teach things some people will, will resonate more with your you or someone else and man we're, we're excited to share this with more people one of the questions that i end all of all of my podcasts with is something that i want to go back to the roots i call it the legacy question and it goes like this if this is your last day the people that you love the most, your family, your beautiful daughters, the people that have impacted your life, and you had to share with them one thing with one, in one conversation. What, what would you share with them with the, the life experience that you had, and, and uh, what would that conversation be like? My, uh, so I, I do have this conversation um, semi-frequently with my daughters, because my daughters have been from really, really difficult places, um, a lot of trauma. So... I want them to know that their life is, is whatever they can create and, and make it to be. That they're not stuck in that, that vision of who they think they are. You know, the, a lot of these kids that, that have been in the foster care system, they, they come from severe abuse and neglect and, you know, sexual abuse, physical abuse, mental abuse. Um, you know, they're starved in some cases, just really horrible situations. And they end up really, truly believing that they don't matter to the world. And so I'm constantly having this conversation with them that they, they can create the life that they want, that, that the, the, the slate has been wiped clean and they get to draw whatever picture they want. They can become whoever they want. They can do anything that they want. And that's the message that I would, I would leave with, with everybody, no matter where you're at today, you know, Wherever you're at today is a function of everything that you've done in your life up till now. All your education, all of your, your daily actions, your disciplines, your mindsets, all of that stuff is a function and it's, it's gotten you to where you are today, but it's not going to get you to where you want to go ultimately. And in order for you to get to where you want to go, you have to recreate the person that you are. You have to literally become a different person. You have to create the person that you're going to become. And that, to wrap it up in in full circle, is um, what we're all about. We're talking about taking action today to change the future. You know, it's not just enough for us to hope and wish and dream about some random goal that we have. We've got to be able to set meaningful and specific targets and change the way that we're doing things today if we hope to get the result that we want in the future. You know, I don't care if it's a year from now, five years from now, or retirement. It doesn't matter. You're not going to get there doing the same things that you've been doing up till now. It's that simple. You're never going to get to where you want to go doing what you've done 
because that's just gotten you where you are. One life, and and one of the things again we preach is ROR, return on result. What what do you what do you want? What does that look like? And how can we help you best live that out? Man, I'm I'm grateful that you're in Denver. It's been fun having you here so far. We we have uh we utilize we're utilizing a lot of the whiteboards, and I'm excited to see what 2020 has. And uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be a fun year. And I again, it means the world that you're here with us, that you're supporting us, and I'm excited to serve a lot of people with you. Yeah, thanks, brother. I really appreciate your hospitality and you know just welcoming me onto the team like you have. It's been amazing. I feel like we've got so much synergy and it's, it's going to be incredible next year. So thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sean. As always, it means the world when you share the episode on social media or just share personally with your friends and family that need to hear this message. Also, if you have an Apple device, giving a written review on our podcast really helps other people just like yourself find these shows and listen to the conversations like Sean's. And and again, I'm really, really excited to see what the future holds and how many people we can share. One of the One of the things that that aligns with Sean and many other people that I bring on to my show is a million by 2025. That's an insane uh, goal. It will change America, but together, I believe if we get this message out, we share some core fundamental beliefs of you being your greatest asset, you have one life, what's your return on result? If people understand that, they'll understand that the end asset is not only protecting them, but the best place to be saving their money for the future and in the present. And I'm just, again, humbled by the fact that I get to do this every week. And so thank you uh, for just being a listener and supporting me and encouraging me. Um, I would not be able to do this. Our message would not be able to get out if it wasn't for you. So go out, have an amazing rest of your day, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. Make sure you press subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or your favorite podcast player.